Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you, now, uh, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they will be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from my people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you, will know, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will increase or greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abram Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13 
Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day. And every male in Abram's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Lord, this is your word. And we ask that you would do, what, do with it what you will. We ask that you would use it to open our eyes to you, to know what it is that you require of us. But we pray, Father, that you would bless it to the, uh, the hearers as well as the speaker. May the words of Christ dwell in us richly. In all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What does God demand of you? What is it that God requires of you? This is not a question for your neighbor, for your spouse, but for you. We live in a time and a place where this idea of God demanding anything of anyone is, a, is despised, a time where if a person introduces, is introduced to a new idea or a new religion or even a new product of some kind, our immediate response is usually something along the lines of, what's in it for me? We are a people driven by what something gives for us, what something does for us, what we get out of it, not the other way around. If we don't like a particular product or service or demand by God, well, then we move on down, down the line until something satisfies our needs or concerns the way we want them to be dealt with. And often Christianity is treated much the same way. Somewhere along the line, the idea is stuck that we get to pick and choose what we want from God as though Christianity is all about us, what we can get out of it. Is God going to do this for me? Is he going to heal this disease? Is he going to give me the kind of spouse I desire? And if not, well, I'll move on down the line to something else that will, that promises it will. And somehow we convince ourselves that we get to make demands of God instead of recognizing God is the one who makes demands of us. If you're a Christian, that is the deal. That's the skinny that's the lowdown. There is no option B. God makes the demands on his people, and he demands all of us, all parts of us, not just an hour of a day, not just one day in seven. We don't even get to determine which parts belong to him and which don't, because he makes demands on every part of who we are. Beloved, that is at the very heart Genesis 17, that is at the heart of what is before us, what God expects of those he covenants with, what he expects of his covenant people, what he demands of them. But interestingly, our text opens up this morning, and the first thing we actually see are God's expectations, not for us, but for himself. God's expectations for himself. As you come to chapter 17, we learn that Abraham is now 99 years old. 
13 years have passed since the birth of Ishmael, and God has not revealed himself in this time frame. 13 years God has silently stood by as Abraham continues to live in a land of Canaan as a sojourner, and now is raising a son who he believes to be the promised seed. It has been 24 years since God first spoke with Abraham and made him a promise that he would give Abraham a land and that he would give him innumerable offspring. Much time has passed in the lifetime of Abraham. Something impossible to communicate in a few short weeks that we've spent with Abraham. And suddenly... After this long time of silence, suddenly God appears to Abraham and again, uh, again, and he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. It's interesting. God comes down. He says, I'm God Almighty, as though Abraham uh, doesn't know who it is. I mean, Abraham knows who this is, right? As soon as God speaks, he immediately falls down before him and worship him. The moment God appears, that is what Abraham is doing. He knows who this is. And yet God comes down and he uses this title and this name and he begins using this covenant language again. Language that we saw back in chapter 15 again. Language so familiar or similar to chapter 15 that Paul in Romans 4 has to clarify what the difference is between these two covenants in chapters 17 And 15, something we'll get into more next week. We're just sort of uh, getting the major contours of chapter 17 this week. We'll have to go back through and reconsider some of the major theological implications as well. But when God says this, when he says, I am God Almighty, walk blamelessly before me. You can fill in the blank for the meaning of what God is doing here. Another way of saying it is, I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the house of Egypt. You shall have no other God before me. God has come down and he has come down to covenant with Abraham again. This is clear language where he is coming to make a promise or an agreement between him and Abraham. El Shaddai. That is the name of God here, God Almighty, the God who is powerful and strong, the God who suffices for all of Abraham's need. God comes down and he gives gives himself a name that one commentator writes evokes the idea that God is able to make the barren fertile to fulfill and to fulfill his promises. That is who is coming down to meet and speak with Abraham. And we see Abraham bow before God. God, As he is there bowing before God, God begins to lay out interestingly, not what he requires of Abraham, that will come later, but what God requires of himself to do. What he has promised he will do for Abraham. He says, behold, my covenant is with you. Something he will repeat nine times. This is God's covenant. This is God's promise coming to Abraham. This is important to him. And you, Abraham, you will be a father of many nations. This is his promise. You will be exceedingly fruitful. 
And I will give you many kings and nations will come from your loins and I will set my covenant between me and between you and between your seed and for generations it will be an everlasting covenant. I will give you the land of Canaan for an eternal possession and I will be the God of your people. All these things are given to Abraham as promise. And God... In the midst of it, he says, and just so you remember what it is that I promise I will do, I will change your name. No longer will you be called Abram, but Abraham. Notice, God comes in and he dictates all the terms of this agreement between these two parties. He dictates all the terms of this covenant. God makes a promise here and he says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and by the way, I'm going to change your name. And Abraham has no ability to determine his part in this particular relationship because this is God. This is the immovable, unchangeable, great I am who is before him. The greater in this relationship, the greater of the two, sets the terms for the lesser. And no one can say otherwise or dictate any changes to it. Think of how ridiculous it would be for an employee who shows up on his first day of work to tell the CEO of 25 years, you know, I don't really want to do any faxes, and I really don't like this 9 to 5 thing. So I'm going to come and I'm going to start at noon, and I'm not going to fax you anything that comes in. I'm just going to call you up and read it out loud to you. Just... Imagine how long that particular relationship will last, right? I mean, we don't get to tell God what he will do and what he won't do for us. We only receive from his hand. This is a one-way action involved so far in the text. Just because he doesn't answer a particular prayer of yours to remove a certain illness doesn't give you the right to say, that's it. I'm done with you, God, because he is God and you are not. He dictates the terms and we do not. Even Abraham doesn't even have an opportunity to say, you know, I really like Abram better than Abraham. You know, I've been using it for a long time. I kind of like it. Can I keep it? He has no say even in his own name. And God sets this new name upon Abraham. A name that sounds good to us because we know the rest of the story. But to Abraham, it seems absolutely absurd, or at least it should appear that way as you hear this word from him. Here is Abraham, 99 years old. He has been called this name Abram, which means great father, by the way. A name that has been scorned to him for most of his life, even a reproach as he walked through the first 86 years of his life without even a child. He was called great father though he was a father of none. And now, just when his name actually begins to mean what it means, just as Abraham actually has a chance to become a great father and fulfill the meaning of his name on his own accord, God says, your name will be Abraham, meaning father of multitudes. I mean, how ridiculous for Abraham to walk away from this encounter with God and say, hey, God just changed my name, oh yeah, yeah, my new name is Father of Multitudes. Well, yeah, how many kids you got? Just one. Things aren't lining up 
here, but it doesn't matter because this is the name God has put upon him. He gives Abraham a new identity, even a new life by changing his name. And as we listen to this and as we see this, all of this covenant language is good. Even these promises given, we hear them and we think how good and how sweet are the promises of God to hear them anew. But notice, up to this point in the text, nothing is really new here that hasn't already been said in chapter 15 except a new name given. There is nothing new yet in the text here for Abraham. God isn't promising anything new. Abraham is called to live obediently to God here, but surely Abraham understood this already. His whole life is to be marked by this obedience to him. This is to be our response in the Christian life, to live in obedience to the call of God. The question then is, why come now and give this covenant? What makes this particular covenant necessary? What has changed between chapter 15, two chapters ago, And now that makes it necessary that God has to speak and covenant anew with Abraham and reveal the same promises he has spoken before. And the only answer that we have to give is Abraham has had a son. Ishmael is now present and we have to understand the text demands this of it. That as Abraham listens to these words from God... These promises, for the first time that God is speaking these promises, he is filling in the blanks with the name Ishmael. Now, you will be called a father of multitude. Okay, I know I only have one son, but through him, you would be, uh, you said he would be blessed and become great and a multitude. Okay, I can begin to see how your promise lines up with what I see with my eyes before me. And you can just picture Abraham reading into everything God says. All these things promise they will be my son Ishmael's. And God will be his God. And these promises are for him. But we'll find out shortly Abraham has got it all wrong. And we'll see that only that once God begins to tell us his expectations of his people, we begin to see it unfold. God's expectations for his people. As you come to verse 9, God begins to lay out what he expects of Abraham and eventually Sarah. He begins to make demands for the duty required of these ones, these people of God, telling them what is their reasonable service to the God of promise. And his demand for Abraham is fairly straightforward to us, albeit a bit unusual for us, even if it's a rated PG 13. Uh, He tells Abraham, here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you and your son and every male in your house to be circumcised. That's it. I want every male child in your house, every relative, every child of a slave who has been purchased with money, every single child who has entered the gates of your care, who is a male, is to be circumcised. I don't care how old they are. They are to take this sign upon themselves. Just as you will take this sign upon yourself. And from now on, when a child is eight days old, circumcise them. This is to be a lasting covenant to you and your household. All those who are under your name and your protection, this sign will be administered to them. Their foreskins too are to be cut off. 
lest they themselves in totality be cut off from me. That is even the language here. Lest they be cut off, remove their foreskin. Okay, so far so good, at least to our dear ears. Most of us have little issue with what God is saying here. But then God goes on and he turns everything upside down for Abraham in verse 15. He says, and Sarah, your wife, her name too will be changed. No longer will she be called Sarai, but Sarah. And she will be blessed. Notice God uses the same language he uses of Abraham a minute ago. It's not just Abraham I make this covenant with, but to Sarah. For she will bear a son and from her kings of nations will come. And just like that, everything Abraham has known or thought for at least 13 years is turned on its head. Everything changes. Sarah is given the promise, not Hagar. Everything that happened in chapter 16 with Ishmael has been banking on the fact that the promise was to Abraham alone and not Sarah. And now God says, by the way, the child I promised you 24 years ago will come from Sarah. This 90-year-old woman will have a child just as you do. Her name will be changed just as your name was changed. Interestingly, the meaning of Sarah's name changes from Sarai to Sarah. It changes very little. Both names here mean princess, but the first form refers back to her lineage, to her background, from where she came from. She had a heritage of of a princess. But now... Her name points to the fact that she will indeed be considered a princess because from her kings will come. It looks now to the promise of the future. Her name points forward now, not to her past. And Abraham hears all of this together from verses 9 through 16, and he laughs. It's a laugh that says, God, you can't be serious. One commentator, Walter Brueggemann, says this. I don't uh, recommend his commentary but he, uh, very often, but he hits the mark occasionally. And he says that in Abraham's laugh is an attempt to avoid the deep and unsettling claim God now makes on him. Think about what God just told him. Abraham, the promise I gave you 24 years ago It still hasn't been fulfilled. It's not through Ishmael that I will work, but a child conceived from Sarah. For 13 years, Abraham has thought Ishmael is the child of promise. And God is saying, no, the promise I give is more profound and unsettling and unbelievable than that. You will still have a child of promise, not of the flesh, Not of man's own doing. It will be so clear that this comes from God that it must come from the womb of a 90-year-old woman. And on top of this crazy promise from God, God says, and by the way, I want you to apply the sign of circumcision to your flesh. In other words, I want you to perform a surgery upon yourself, one that cannot in any way help matters regarding this promise that I make. It can only harm them. What you do to your flesh can only harm this promise that is made. Things can go seriously wrong as God commands Abraham to uh, uh, go under this cutting. That is the language used, this cutting of the very organ needed to fulfill this promise of reproduction. It's one thing to say it when you already have a son to be circumcised. 
It's another to say, be circumcised, and then I want you to have a child by that very organ later this very year. It goes against all logic and human wisdom. And God says, I know you're 99 years old, but you still need to do this. This is no minor surgery at this time. There is no uh, modern surgical procedures to ease the surgery. It is something that carries risk and serious recovery problems for an aged man. In Genesis 34, we see Dinah, and she is defiled. And when uh, uh, later her defiler uh, comes and asks for her hand in marriage, Simeon and Levi say, sure, you can marry her, but you know we have this uh, little tradition back home. Uh, it's no big deal, but we need you to do it and we, if you want to marry her. And it's called circumcision. And all the males in the whole town need to receive this sign, and it will be fine. And the text tells us three days later, after receiving the sign, these men are still so unable to move from the soreness that Levi and Simeon slaughter all the males of this town. These men who are in their prime, in the peak of health. And here Abraham, a 99-year-old man, is being told, I want you to physically cut the very organ through which the promised child is to come. It can't possibly help the situation of bringing forth a child of promise. It can only bring further harm, even damaging the very means of God's promise. And God, Abraham hears all of this together and he laughs, thinking, God, is this really what you want to do? It's not disbelief that he laughs from. Notice in the next chapter, we'll see Sarah rebuked by God for laughing in disbelief, but not Abraham, not here. It is simply unsettling to him what he is asking Abraham to do, what God is requiring of him. It's more of a, God, are you sure about this thing? Are you sure this is the way that you want to do it? I have a son already. Use him. In fact, he says, may Ishmael live before you. And God says very simply, no, I'm not doing things that way. I will still bless Ishmael as I promised. He will receive many blessings, but Isaac is the one who will receive the promise. Isaac is the promised child, the one who will indeed bring great laughter that kind of encapsulates this whole thing. Isaac, this one, will come and seal this promise. This one who comes through Sarah's womb, who will give all involved a great laugh. That's what Isaac names means. He laughs. And God himself will get in a, a real sense the last laugh here. Now surely Isaac will bring much joy to Abraham and Sarah. But God is the one looking at this situation and saying, Look, this is simply an incredible work that I will do. It is a supernatural miracle that will take place. And I will get the last laugh when you see with your eyes what I can do. And the real question of the whole text that it hinges on, as you hear the lucrativeness or the, the, the craziness of what he is asking, or what God is asking of Abraham is how indeed will Abraham respond? What will he do as God sets these demands on his body? On every part of his very person, as he makes demands of Abraham, what will he do? And the text records Abraham's response. 
God has set these terms. God has come down as the main character on his stage, preparing to do something too wonderful to conceive, coming to do his work, and he is about to do something wonderful. And yet from Abraham's perspective, we should hear all these things that God is doing and recognize, again, the outlandish, outrageous nature of these requests. 24 years, Abraham has been waiting for God to fulfill his promise. And now God is saying, by the way, Ishmael doesn't count. That promise I gave you all that time ago, it is still not fulfilled. But in one year's time, it will indeed come. God has now delayed in building the church of God up through natural descendants for 24 years. This is no small time frame in the life of believers God will indeed, as he has promised, all along he will still work. He still will move in his people, but he is in no hurry. With all of that hanging, we half expect Abraham to say, no more, God, I'm done. Wash my hands of this. This isn't what I signed up for 24 years ago. You can keep your promises. You have delayed long I don't need the aggravation that it causes to follow you. You can keep your promises because I already have a son. I mean, it was one thing 24 years ago when you told me all these good things are in store for me, but I have waited long and now you're telling me that my own son isn't even part of this promise that you give. So really, I'm starting all over from scratch again. No more. No more. And yet that's not what we see. That's not what we see a man of faith do as he walks by faith and not by sight. As the text wraps up, God ascends back into the heavens. And Abraham tells us, the text tells us, he immediately goes. And he takes his son and all those born of his house, both free and slave, all those whom he oversees, every male in his house. And the text emphasizes this, it says it twice, on the self same day, the very God, day that God reveals what Abraham is to do, his whole house receives the sign of circumcision. 99-year-old Abraham hears God's words. He knows what God is asking seems crazy according to the wisdom of this world, and yet he does it anyway. He believingly follows God. Abraham commits himself to God through this act in a full, sincere allegiance. He commits himself to God in the way demanded of him, not, uh, but not only himself does he commit to God. He commits his son and his entire household by Abraham's faith they are all indeed pledged to be God, or to be gods. One part of themselves is cut off completely in order to show by this sign who they belong to. But what does that mean for us? I mean, it's, it's one thing to hear what Abraham's actions are. It's another thing altogether to understand what it has to do with us. People of God, have you come to the point where just like Abraham, you realize Christianity is not about you. It's not what about not about what you have to offer God. I mean, Abraham has a son now, and God says, I don't want that. That is not going to help the situation. I have come and I am making a promise. I don't want anything mixed with your works at all. I want you though. I want your wholesale, complete, entire submission to myself. I want your obedience to me. 
Not as a way to be made righteous before me. Genesis 15 already told us that's not the case. God's intention or initiates everything in our salvation. He delivers us from our sin, from ourselves, even from the greatest of our works that we would have to offer ourselves. We have nothing whatsoever to offer God to save us except faith in Jesus Christ, the promised seed that would come. As Paul makes so plain in Romans 4. And yet after God saves his people, he still has a demand on them. He marks them. He renames them. They are indeed his. They are his in complete totality, physically and spiritually. We have been bought for a price. God owns us. Not just on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings, not just for an hour here and there, but every part of you is his. You realize your relationship with God governs your sexuality and how you use it properly. It governs our truthfulness at work and at home. We don't get to pick and choose what part God gets, what ways we will be obedient to him. He gets to say, I want every part, especially that part of you that you are so desperately clinging to for your own identity, that little bit of self-identity you have left. Father of Ishmael, I want you to give me everything that creates a false hope, a faith in the flesh. We are called to walk in obedience to him, not in order to save ourselves, but because he loved us and bought us for a price. How can we not give of our whole selves to him? Truly, this is where we get squeamish, right? I mean, it's okay if God can help me when I need to, uh, need a little boost in this life, you know, do a little prayer, get a little job, get a nice salary, whatever. We turn God into this cosmic genie. But as soon as demands are made by him on our lives, our whole being, our souls, as soon as we are required to do something we don't want to do, we get uncomfortable. But being redeemed, dear Christian. Being God's people bought for a price makes demands on your whole being, your sexuality and how you use it, your children and how you raise them, your work and how you uh, act there, how you worship him and with who, your connection to the body of Christ, every part of who you are is demanded of you. And therein lies the rub. Because none of us is so entirely committed to God's covenant that we are able to walk perfectly blameless before him. Abraham, the man of faith, walks in obedience here, but not always. And so God, in the fullness of time, he sent forth his only son to be cut off for us, not only to be circumcised on the eighth day, but Colossians 2 tells us he became the circumcision. He himself, his whole body, was cut from the land of the living. God's judgment fell upon him like a sword, cutting him off from the blessings that he indeed earned in order that we might walk with God blameless. And the people of God will be bought for a price in this way. And people of God, dear Christian, that makes all the difference in the world. It doesn't excuse our lackadaisical, half-hearted commitments to him, but it makes it possible for ourselves to give to him in obedience, walking with him, not in order to be loved by God, but because he loved us so much that he sent one 
to die for us and redeem every part of who you are. You belong to him because he loved you so much that he was cut off for your sake, that you might have life everlasting in the presence of the Father. How dare we withhold our obedience to him? He asks of us to give of ourselves to him. May we do so through the eyes of faith, knowing that in these acts, in these ways, through this obedience, he will indeed continue to bless the church. He will continue to do his work, continue to bring about his kingdom, not because of you, but because of what he has begun in Christ Jesus, he will bring to completion. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you recognizing that you demand our whole beings, our whole self. We pray, Father, that you would remove these things from us in which we uh, uh, hold back from you, that we say, don't touch this. We don't want this part of my life to be taken. We pray, Father, that you would conform us more into the image of your Son. We pray that you would help us to give of ourselves because you have given yourself for us, because your Son, Christ Jesus, died upon a cross in order that we might live. And out of love and out of uh, reverence for you, may we indeed let go of the things of this flesh, the things of this life that are of less importance and follow after you, endeavoring truly to walk blamelessly before you, knowing that where we falter and fail, there is Christ Jesus, high and lifted up, the one who marks the race that is set before us, who is at the end of the course waiting for his people. Father, we pray all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.